episode four of Songs from a Padded Envelope. My name is Steve and I'm here with co-host Ben. Hello, Ben. Hey there, Steve. So this episode features a conversation with Paul Preston Mills, who joins us to talk about his band Lung Nugget. So I've known Paul for over 30 years and we've performed and made music together. And his is one of those enduring friendships where... It doesn't matter how long it's been since you last spoke or you just sort of pick up where you left off. Um, ben, do you remember when you first met Paul? God, um, I don't know if I do. I, I'm, I'm wondering whether the first instance with meeting Paul would have been at, um, at, um, the, at Euston at Rails, possibly, at the, um, from, the head, from the Heads Came show. I think that might have been the first experience of seeing him. I don't know if I got to talk to him that night. Does that... Look, think that you think that might be the right time. Yeah, I think that's I think that's exactly right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Almost, almost certainly, because Paul and I were in a band together, and we played at the Rails Club in Houston. And I think because you you'd helped to sort that show out because you'd played there previously with Green Mivy. Is that the band that you're in? Yeah, yeah? I think um, I think it was. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean that's an episode in itself, right there. <laughs> it is indeed, mate. Yeah, um, yeah. But yeah, so uh, yeah, it probably was. And then he would just Paul would just turn up in London, unannounced on a Friday evening. He'd arrive having driven on his motorbike from Lowestoft with a with an overnight bag stuffed with all that he needed for the weekend, and uh, <laughs> and then we would have a weekend. You know, but the thing is, despite sort of being friends for so long, doing an actual interview was a real sort of treat. And a really good way of hearing a different perspective on on his life. Did you did you expect the conversation to go the way that it did? I expected some of the conversation to go the way it did, um, Steve. Yeah, kind of. Um, I mean, I haven't known Paul as long as you, but um, many, many varied and uh, significant memories of um, nights and time spent with him always entertaining, always full of stories and lots of reflection afterwards and lots of laughter. So we got that in spade loads, didn't we? Um, But there was also a completely different side of Paul that came across um, in significant moments. I think people are in for a real treat today. You know, they're going to get some some fantastic stories that are going to have, you know, have people falling off their chair with with bellyfuls of laughter. But I think we really urge people to listen a little bit deeper than that, because you're going to find some, you know, completely different side um, expressed. You know, you're going to find hear someone absolutely nail the essence and importance of of narrative and storytelling and then also kind of talk about a real pivotal moment in their life about making a commitment to creativity and everything that kind of proceeded and led on from there. Yeah, so I think um, some of what I expected and a lot of what I didn't. What about what about for you? Yeah, I, I agree. But it was nice to – it's an unusual situation to find yourself in, speaking to such a uh, a friend of such a long time and interviewing them about their life aspects of which you know about but you it's not a, it's not a context or in which you sort of speak to your friends especially people that you've known for so long so it was really interesting to do that and then to for him to be 
so engaging all the way through and you know sort of generous with his uh, with his uh, stories and 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 the honesty of, especially around some of the sort of key decisions that he's made in his life um we could easily have another episode with Paul and, or two or three and 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 hear stories I mean, you know the, the the his trip to south america the with a with a sort of traveling circus show around south america that took him all over the place for for months is an is an epic tale we didn't even you know we didn't even discuss that um yeah i loved it i loved i loved speaking with him and and well the thing is his interview came about because he's just recently unearthed these long nugget recordings so as well as him being such a fantastic storyteller and so funny the band also featured justin and dan hawkins who went on to form the darkness so it's a little rock and roll curio too Oh, it's per- it's perfect, isn't yeah. it? It's great. Yeah, yeah. It's lovely that he's the custodian of that now. <laughs> um, but so now you've heard those Lung Nugget songs. Are you are you hoping for a reunion show? I I would absolutely kill for a reunion. <laughs> I think it would be phenomenal. I think <laughs> that's um, yeah. Well, you know, when people when people come to listen to the recording at the end of the episode, it's it's a proper raw full rock and roll experience that captures captures them in the moment isn't it it is um it would be yeah it's 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 a lovely thing um did did you ever see long long nugget i'm not sure if you we've decided you had seen them or not i don't think i did i don't don't think so i don't have a memory of seeing them but yeah i remember hearing those songs for the first time and and in particular satan's in my phone box which is the song that features at the end of this episode um it became quite a a a, a cult hit in the last of music scene yeah just thinking a little bit more on um reflecting on on the yeah. the interview afterwards immediately you know and in, in particular about you know we know that paul's undertaken a whole myriad of kind of creative kind of roots in his life done you know hundreds of different things and uh, and and when he talked about the moment in which he decided to make that commitment you know kind of it really brought back to my mind the conversation that you and I had when we were talking with um when we were talking with Jarbo from the from the you know the new york new york no wave band swans and she was talking about a kind of a similar epiphany a sort of moment where she you know she looked at what her life was like at that moment felt that everything was mapped out and was deeply unhappy about it and you know she she described how she you know she decided that she was gonna she was gonna dive without a net and it led to what she described as being a, an extremely difficult way of life, but one that she totally didn't regret. And she and she urged people to um, to make that commitment, you know, to not be afraid and to make a decision to to live a life based around creativity and not regret that those decisions. And be, and being absolutely true to yourself. Yeah, totally. And I think one of the things that we've started to uh, that we hoped we would unearth in this podcast uh, as well as finding you know the experience of people who made demos and have unearthed them was what is it that drives people people's creativity what is it that makes them want to yeah want to make things yeah i don't really have anything to add to that i think that's spot on mate okay so let's go over to our 
interview with Paul Preston Mills from Lung Nugget. Uh, well, I, I'm Paul Preston Mills. Hello. Good evening, podcast audience of the world. Uh, or indeed, good morning, if that's your preferred time. Um, I'm uh, one of the co-conspirators in a, a band known uh, as Lung Nugget, uh, formed in the early 90s. And the song you'll be listening to is uh, our opus, Satan's in My Phone Box. And it is a beautiful, beautiful <laughs> piece of music, which I think a lot of people will find <laughs> relaxing uh, and yeah, edifying I mean, at the end of, at, like, of this episode. I think like all great music, it veers between unlistenable and beauty. Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> I think that was, that was the particular furrow you were ploughing in, in Lung Nugget, I think. Pretty much, yeah. Yeah, yeah it was basically... Um, yeah, thumbing our noses at everything we could get away with. So I, before, I think before we go any further, um, it's probably worth mentioning that we are very familiar with one another, the three of us. We mm, are almost with biblically. Each other. <laughs> I had to um, run into a hedge at your wedding and put petrol into a generator in order that the ceremony could take place, as I recall. Oh, you absolutely did save moment. the day. Yes, you did. In the rain. <laughs> In the rain. In the rain. Um, I, I remember you emerging glorious from a from a copse of trees, um, in your tank top, <laughs> reeking of petrol and success. <laughs> <laughs> just an, just another normal day for you, really, mate. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> so lung nugget. Now, I'd encourage people to wait and not skip to the end, although, you know, the promise of a song called Satan's in my phone box is is obviously going to be too tantalizing for some people. And they may just skip the conversation and go straight to the listening to the song. But um, for those people that don't do that, this recording is obviously not a polished studio demo. Could you just go through how you recorded the song and what you were intending to do with the recordings? Um, we were recording the songs um, because at some point in the future, we knew there'd be a technology whereby people would want to talk about old shit that people had done and then play it to other people on the Internet. So we thought we'd better record them. Um, and it was recorded. Uh, I don't actually remember how. I think it was recorded on Commercial Road in Lowestoft um, in... Uh, a building that I can't remember the name of and Steve might be able to remember the name of, which was like a youth club come rehearsal space. It's near the Seabreeze Club, uh, if you're down that way, where my friend Darren was glassed quite brutally about 10 years later. Um, he was survived, though, don't worry. And it was just, I think we just put it on whichever cassette player someone had brought with them. Uh, and it's just a recording of the band going through the song in the space quite feistily i think feisty is the word i'd use it's quite a feisty quite a feisty uh capture of that particular song you sent us a whole bunch of tracks over paul were they all recorded at the same time in the same sort of fashion yes i think they were recorded all at exactly the same time and the guy that had them so i'm assuming i think he probably recorded them was our bass player uh who for many years was known solely by the moniker of med so uh i think he recorded them and he was our bass player um, at the time, we did have 
another bass player who's currently living in America uh, called Skeets. Oh, actually, no, we had three bass players uh, because the original bass player was a chap called James Lear. Um, but I can't remember why he left. I think he just didn't like playing bass for us. So, Paul, tell us a little bit about how the band came together initially. Ooh, um, well, <clears throat> the band, uh, the, the, the core of the band, the kind of the engine room of the band's creativity was uh, myself and a fellow by the name of Justin Hawkins, uh, also of Lower Stuffed, um, who went on to do some other musical things. And um, we we first met, um, I think, in a rehearsal space, uh, maybe even in passing, uh, and got chatting. And then we were, I think, we were at a gig at uh, a place called Forbes Brewery in Alton Broad, which is close to Lowestoft. Um, and we decided at that moment we were going to form a band, um, probably a duo at that point. So we decided to get a gig as we decided to form a band. So we bullshitted the manager of the bar that we were going to do four sets uh, on the Saturday fortnight following. Um, A folk set, a rock set, a pop set, um, and I think and a set of originals, Um, none of which we'd got. Um, And we'd agreed, I think we agreed, I think it was 50 quid and as much beer as we could drink. Um, we decided the band at that point would be called Some Enchanted Evening. And he kind of went back to selling people drinks. And we looked at each other and said, uh, well, we better we better get on with this. So we, we went into a rehearsal studio on the Monday and said, what the fuck are we going to do? <laughs> so uh, just started <laughs> putting stuff down. Um, Justin had a particularly nice song um, called Trudy, which uh, which I liked a lot. The, the the verse of which was no, the chorus was um, Trudy, we love you. You're the best girl in the whole school. You can do things the other girls can't with your boyfriend David and your grandma. <laughs> uh, he could sing it better than me. He's got a higher register. Oh, that was beautiful. I yeah, I let that. him sing that bit. <laughs> I can't, I can't remember the bit that I sang. I can't even remember what words I put to it. Basically, we'd come up with stupid shit and then try and turn it into songs. Uh, one was a rock set cover, which ended up being um, I strangled a dove, I bedded a cow, I slept with a daffodil and I don't know how. I strangled a <laughs> dove, I bedded a cow. It's where the water blows, plucked from the pirate's nose. Um, which is which was quite fun and the the finale of the entire evening we did the gig two weeks later the two of us um i think we started out calling ourselves tree frog and hawk but decided that some enchanted evening was a better name i think i stuck to my guns on that one it was a better name and um the the evening finished climaxed with justin singing last christmas using the it was the demo song on his keyboard so he put the demo song of his keyboard on and then screamed last christmas this was in i think it was june um at the audience um but the the thing was that we told everybody in lower stuff that this gig was going to be incredible so the place was absolutely rammed the guy sold tons of booze and he couldn't not pay us 
he he paid us. He called us both cunts, and then he we drunk ourselves stupid. But he had to pay us because we'd sold so much beer for him. But he wouldn't give us a second gig. Uh, so we we then decided after some enchanted evening had uh, become a roaring success overnight, quite literally, to extend that um, and start a full band, which Justin insisted on being called Lung Nugget. And I, I'd had some enchanted evening, so it was his turn. So we were called Lung Nugget. Um, and we put, uh, we put his brother, um, Dan Hawkins, uh, I don't know what happened to him, on drums. Uh, he was, I think Dan was... 15 possibly 16 justin was 17 possibly 18 and i'm a bit older i was probably about 24 and med was probably about 22 um yeah and lung nugget were formed and uh good times they were good times and i'm not quite sure what we were trying to do um just trying to annoy people and lower stuff i think I mean, that was the main reason for for Lung Nugget was just to annoy people, because the the the, the grunge scene had become very very self indulgent. Very, it was very reverent. Um, I mean, Nirvana were basically um, they couldn't do anything wrong at that point. It was a, you, you questioning them was a bit like um, a bit like you know questioning Donald Trump. I mean, imagine that. It was it was a kind of high high heresy. It was a high a high form of heresy. So we decided to form a grunge band that took the piss out of all the other grunge bands. Yeah, yeah. I'm pretty sure that's what happened. We were drunk most of the time. It was the nineties. So if you if you had to list your influences for the band, what would you say were this kind of three kind of key texts or records? So what plus what plus what equals Lung Nugget? Oh, that's a good question. Um, what plus what plus what equals a lung nugget? I think it would be, um, I don't think it would be bands necessarily. I think um, I was really into really stupid comedy. And Justin and I just shared this real love of really stupid whimsy, just making stupid shit up and then carrying it through as far to the point where it people had to either laugh or leave because you had to commit or go home it was that simple maybe that isn't there's a kind of bonzo element a bonzo dog doodah band vivian stanshall element in there i don't even know if justin knew that stuff he probably did he's he seemed he didn't we didn't really discuss other musical influences we just like to make a racket um and the beautiful thing was that you just put a guitar in Justin's hands and he, he'd just start making a noise. You go, yeah, do that again and then do that bit and then do that again and go, what can you do now? You go, I could do this. You go, yeah, do that. And then and then Med would make some noises on the bass to go along with it. And then we'd tell Dan what to play on the drums and then he'd play it. He was very earnest. Dan was always very earnest. So I think going back to your question very securitously, um, I mean, everybody, I mean, Nirvana were the tits. Let's, let's be honest. They just were head and shoulders above everything else that was going on in the early 90s just seemed to kind of fall, fall beneath their spell um, to some degree. Um, and that, 
we wanted to be bigger than Nirvana, basically. I think that's what we wanted to be, but we didn't want to have to try too hard. Um, we never, we never over rehearsed. We we never over rehearsed anything. Um, we just kind of did it. Do Do you think that the um, the scene at the time in Lowestoft encouraged that? That it, there was there was a, there were a lot of bands, and it was dead positive and really creative and you could play places and you could follow through on the craziest of ideas because people would would encourage it and support it and and enjoy the joke and for the most part people would just be up for it and the scene the scene for what it, for want of a better word the sort of culture in the town musically um was really rich and and supportive of itself I th yes, I think that's I think that's true. I think the if there was a band playing, you didn't go, you didn't say, oh, I'm not going to go and watch them. I don't like their music. You just go, I'm going to go and see what they're doing. There was a there was a very intense metal scene that took itself very seriously. Um, and I, I remember going to um, I think it was the I think it was the Morton Road Youth Club to watch a band who at the time, I can't, what are they, called? they weren't called Synaptic at the time. They were whatever John Knight's band was before that. There's a band called Synaptic now. You can look them up. They're still about, they do very technical metal. And they were playing, so literally everybody went. And it, you weren't, it, wasn't, it wasn't exclusively metal as they'd be like, it was still very tribal back in the early 90s. But it was the fact that live music was happening kind of pulled all the tribes together. In, under a kind of protective umbrella of art, so it was very supportive. If you had a problem, if if you know if a piece of kit went down, you'd, you'd have to run to a phone box and try and find someone who had a bit of kit. Um, but people would always help each other out. Uh, you might not like what they were doing, but you respect the fact that they were getting up there and getting on with it. So, Paul, following that kind of very auspicious start for you for for Lung Nugget, how did you, how did the live career progress for the band? Where did it go from there? Well, I, I think I think I def, you're using the definition of career differently to me. I think of career as to travel downhill rapidly with very little control, um, which is basically <laughs> what we did. Um, we just had we just had an awful lot of fun. Uh, there wasn't a great plan. There wasn't. There wasn't a. We're going to be enormously famous. There was. We're going to have a lot of fun, um, and we had as much fun rehearsing as we did performing. I mean, I think the the thing is, there were there were there were people such as yourself, Steve, who were taking it all very seriously, uh, not in a po faced way, but in a I'd like to make a career in this. Um, and at the time, it it was a it was a time before Justin was taking himself particularly seriously not that he's ever taken himself massively seriously and and I, I had no illusions about my my musical ability I was just out there I just like getting in front of a microphone and fucking shit up and that was the best way that was the best avenue to do that at that point was to be in a band and go and muck about with it actually that's a nice that's a nice segue mate because music wasn't your sole creative interest was it and so can you can you talk a little bit about what your other creative interests were at the time uh yeah well i mean music i was a i am and 
was and always will be a big music fan. I mean, it's just, and I don't, I, I come from a not particularly musical family, well, my, my immediate family anyway. Um, my parents didn't have a record collection. Oh, my father bought an enormous and very expensive Technic stereo, but never bought any records, which I never really understood. Um, and Steve still got it. I'm waiting for him to die so I can have it because it's worth a fortune now. It's, it's a beautiful thing. Um, I keep trying to get him to go to the supermarket, but he won't have it. So I was, I think I was just, I was very, very, it was the case of I, I got in front of a microphone and it just felt like a natural place to be. It just always felt like somewhere that, it just felt comfortable. It just always felt like home. I'm still, I mean, I do a lot of work these days as a stage compare. So you basically just go out there with a microphone and your audience are your instrument. You you play with them and you, you see what wacky nonsense you can create together whilst still getting the job done. Um, and that that's what it, I think that's what it did for me, that early <laughs> musical careering downhill. Uh, it gave me that, it opened that avenue, it opened the opened the door to an avenue of possibilities. And I've, I just like the raw immediacy of a microphone, an audience, and not knowing what the hell's going to happen. No script, no plan. And I, that's a bit like what it felt in Lung Nugget was the boys would make some noise and me and Justin would say some things and sing some things and somehow out of all that it would work and it would be visceral and people would have a reaction to it. I've always maintained that there's no such thing as a, a bad reaction to art. If you hate it, that's as valid as loving it. I just uh, say when I was uh, talking with Steve earlier about the sort of impending conversation with you, I'm aware that this is going to sound a little bit ridiculous, but um, walking around yesterday thinking about our various in encounters, I had a kind of vision you, of you as a kind of you know like a sort of a sort of town crier, like uh, but you know back in time, you've always felt to me like someone who kind of carries stories for people, and I wondered how important you know given what you've just said now about the importance of kind of narrative and storytelling for you and kind of your creativity? Um, well, I think I was actually, we were talking about this. I was, I was in a meeting, in a Zoom meeting yesterday with um, some people from the Puppet Theatre in Norwich who I've been touring with off and on. I work as a puppeteer. In moments of deep crisis, um, the thing that people do is gather around the fire and tell stories to each other to pass on information, but also to um, communicate, to to give solace, to take solace, to feel um, useful, to uh, instill confidence in people and also for people to take confidence away. So I think that that narrative, this storytelling, this storytelling is, is how all of human history has been and all of human actions have been passed on. All tradition is storytelling, all everything that everything that you've learned, you've been taught through some kind of story. A story has been told to you, or you've read a story. Even a even a technical manual is is technically, pardon the pun, uh, a story in some way, shape, or form. So I think the story, the the idea of a story, 
is the is very 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 deeply ingrained in in human psyche and and the the way humans are and is that an important part for you in terms of all the various because you've gone on lots of different sort of creative tangents does that kind of filter through most of those at some point do you think yeah absolutely i used to there was a guy um he's still alive a director who used to i used to work with uh, um a place called the seagull theater and his the great directing note that he used to give that i i still use to this day is uh he just go what are you doing what are you doing just tell the story stop stop acting just tell the story just just tell the story and i think most of the time what you want people to do is just tell the story when someone makes a piece of music that speaks to you directly they're telling you the story they're not waffling around the edges or trying to show you how clever they are technically they're trying to they're trying to tell you the story as directly and cleanly and effectively as they can so it goes so it drills down right deep into you your creative life has uh, has taken you on so many different adventures and all over the world and i've always been really Im- Im- impressed by that um and that's that's still you know cu- current situation with the uh, lockdown notwithstanding that you've had these adventures kind of globally and continue to and just we just wanted to ask you to to sort of share some of the ones that that stick out in your memory where where your creativity is taken you perhaps things that you were surprised about or situations you didn't expect to find yourself in necessarily there's a, a guy i met uh at a festival called the witchwood festival which takes place on cheltenham racecourse in it's in late may every year i think yeah it is late may uh and they they were very early adopters of a sit of a, a thing called the silent disco which was invented in holland by a guy called Nico Accurse, who ended up becoming a friend of mine. Uh, and I uh, immediately fell in love with the entire concept of a disco where everyone's wearing headphones, you're listening to two channels, so you can pick one DJ or the other DJ and dance along to, uh, or, or just involve yourself in whatever nonsense they're up to. And then you can flip. You can flip between the two channels. You can dance and, and enjoy. And it's very social because half the audience can be dancing to one thing and you'll be dancing to, uh, half the audience can be dancing to it, to another thing. Uh, and sometimes uh, you, you take the audience on a kind of sine wave shaped journey, uh, but you have a, two sine waves running in parallel next to each other. And I met him uh, about three years running at this festival. I was working as a steward there. And eventually I just, I figured, like, I've got to get myself some of this action. This is fucking great. I want some of this. So uh, I just endlessly have conversations with him whenever I could. And we got on. And then one year, a friend of mine, uh, Jeff McQueen, who lectures in radio, uh, he's a radio, um, he's a professor of radio, if that's even a thing, um, but it is apparently. Uh, and But before that, he was a student of radio. And he he asked me, to help him gather a load of field recordings for a project, one of his coursework pieces, I think. Uh, and so I engineered giving my, getting myself an, uh, an interview with this guy, Nico, at the festival. The, the interviews with all the, uh, the interviews and the material gathering was, was all about this festival. It was like a, an audio documentary. 
so we we sat in the van and um I interviewed him and we had a long rambling conversation nothing like this one and um that was that I signed off on it uh emailed him about six months later and said look thanks very much and look, if you ever need a, another dj give me a shout and uh about a year later i bumped into him at another gig another festival somewhere and, and badgered him again he said okay okay well we'll we'll do something about this and then in i think it was in november of that year uh i get a phone call hello paul um from holland and I'm, I'm i've got the most horrific cold at this point i've got a streaming head it's banging i feel dreadful he says oh, if you want to come to uh, rotterdam this weekend i can um i can audition you for a job as a silent disco dj so uh thinking well i feel dreadful but you know this opportunity is not going to come again so um so i get on the harwich to hook van holland ferry and, and try and sleep on the ferry. The ferry crossing takes four hours in daylight and eight hours at night because they go half speed because it's dark and they don't put enough headlights on ships for some reason. I'm not sure why. I think it's the environment. Um, <laughs> so I end up in Rotterdam. Uh, I get picked up from, from I, think I, I think I just got a, a train into Rotterdam and then get picked up in a van and then get taken to a, a warehouse Right, okay, we're going to make some radio. <laughs> what? Okay, yeah, we're going to make a radio program now and it's going to go out tomorrow night um, and that will be your audition. It's like, okay, I've got a horrible headache. Do you know how to work this computer? Uh, have you worked this DJ software before? No. Okay, so here's 15 minutes to learn that. Uh, would you like some of this beer? Yes. So we just <laughs> drank a load of beer and made some, made some, radio, made some radio program and then... I think, I think I think then we went to a party. It was one of those kind of jobs. And and it all seemed to go very well. And about six months, no, four months later, I think it was in January the next year, I get a call, can you go to, to Bath and, and do a gig? It's your first gig. I'm like, okay. So I get a, I get a train to Bath and, and the gig goes okay. It was fine. And then... Another, I did another gig, I think again in Bath, and I did one somewhere else, can't remember where, Brighton possibly. And then I get a phone call, um, have you got a passport? Yes, I've got a passport. Um, you're going to Serbia in August, no, July, July, I think it was July. You're going to Serbia in July, um, you're going to DJ this festival, um, Here, this is how much money it is, do you want to do it? But yeah, obviously. Um, the thing was that what nobody had told me was that the guy that they were sending me with was a bona fide Dutch psychopath, a <laughs> uh, complete maniac. Um, the only person who could control him was our floor manager. Um, we had there's three, so there's two DJs and a floor manager, and then a local contact as the, the entire team running this crazy enterprise. Um, and I realised on this was a four night gig. We were performing from ten o'clock at night until four in the morning, four nights in a row. So a six-hour DJ sets. So no, yeah, six-hour DJ sets. So they're quite long. Um, I'd only been given the laptop that morning, the morning before the first show, and they gave me a laptop and they gave me a massive hard drive and a and a transformer plugged into the back of the van. So we're driving from the from Rotterdam to Serbia, and I'm loading this laptop up with all the tracks off this hard drive that I fancy. And then plugging all my own stuff in as well and trying to work it all out and learning how to use it. 
And then I get saddled with this complete lunatic at the other end who's mad as a bicycle. And I realized the only way I was going to keep this guy in his box was to go one more monstrously stupid than him. So I spent the first night just kind of getting the lay of the land. And on night two, I thought, well, this is getting, this is going to be interesting. It's going to be difficult to work out how to, how to, how to muzzle this mad, rabid puppy. And then on night three, I took all my clothes off and hung from the roof of the tent whilst doing a DJ set. Um, <laughs> and everyone went completely mad because this is Serbia where nobody does that sort of thing. Um, and, and he challenged me to do it live on the, on, on the stage that night. And I just went, yeah, fuck you, I'll do it. Watch this. So I put on Iggy Pop's Lust for Life and then climbed <laughs> to the roof of the tent naked and swung about like a gibbon kind of waving at all the audience and then climbed down again and he never gave me any more shit again. So there's a top tip for you, uh, listening public. If you, if people, um, if you want to get on top of people, just you've got to go the extra mile. It's as simple as that. I was, I was going to ask you um, how the creative hit between your sort of current ventures and your, your early musical ventures um, uh, differed, but actually that seems completely irrelevant now because it's, uh, yeah. <laughs> Well, there, there was, um, I do remember one Lung Nugget gig where I did the entire show dressed in my then girlfriend's sports bra. No other top. <laughs> just to, I just had on a very, she was quite petite. Uh, I'm not massive, but I was a reasonably sized human being. Um, so I had this tiny little sports bra as my top. And I can't remember what I was wearing on the bottom. Probably some kind of horrible trousers I monstered on a sewing machine. Um, so yeah, just, just go all out. There's no point in fucking about. You just got to get on with it. Um, you, this, this is a, this is a little kind of sidebar because you reminded me when you were talking about, you know, the number of festivals that you've worked over the years, but you have a particular relationship with Glastonbury, don't you? And, um, I just wondered if you, you could share a little bit about that and how that's changed over the years. Cause I know you've been a lot in a lot of different guises. Mm, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm currently grieving for Glastonbury not being on this year, which is a, a great disappointment to me. And I was actually, before we um, started this uh, interview, if that's what you want to call it, uh, talking to a friend of mine who runs a, a backstage bar at Glastonbury. Um, uh, yeah, you just meet the most marvellous people. I, just, I mean, started off as a punter in i mean i don't know about 1990 maybe something like that when the world was very different i remember going it's back when you could buy a glastonbury ticket from andy's records remember that steve andy's records in uh in lowestoft you could go in there and buy a, a glastonbury ticket the week before um and then i i remember one particular one where i motorcycled down i got my i had a 500 cc honda motorbike um, and I, I put everything on that and, and rode all the way to Glastonbury and I felt amazing. Uh, and when I parked up, the guy that arrived next to me was on a Poosh Maxi moped. Um, and I had a kind of roll mat and some beer and a tent and he had a box of wine um, strapped to the back of his Poosh Maxi. He'd come from, I think it was Bath, which is not quite as far as you know, Bath's about, I don't know. 40 or 50 miles and lower soft to Glastonbury is like 270 or something. Um, so we drank the box of wine before we went into the festival. Uh, and then on the way in this, I was walking, was walking on to the site. I had a kind of 
you, at that point, you you kind of left your you changed your crash helmet to your motorbike. You took out the tax disc so you could prove it was your bike when you came back at the end of the festival. Put that in your wallet. And I was stomping off into the festival with my ticket in my hand, and I had this little voice behind me, um, and this uh, this tiny girl went, ah, "Excuse me, excuse me, could you um, will you take me in as as your sister? Because uh, they won't let me in on my own, but it's under twelves are free." And she was literally about four feet tall, and I said, "How old are you?" And she said, "I'm fifteen. I've bunked off school. Um, uh, my mates have all got in, but they won't let me in. They won't believe I'm old enough." So I had to pretend I pretended that this girl was my daughter, uh, my sister, Sandra. <laughs> so I had to adopt her accent. Got her in. The moment I was inside the festival with her, she disappeared and I never saw her again. It was remarkable. Um, you, you can't get apparently you can't get away with that now. It's become a very become a monstrous, monstrous beast. I mean, I got I, the first time I worked there was yeah, two thousand. We had a a sit down chat, me and some kind of theatrical friends of mine and said, uh, well, we really want to go to Glastonbury, but none of us have got any money. So what should we do? So, and it was the year they decided as an experiment to put some walkabout acts on in the marketplaces. Um, and they were doing a, just an open call. So well, I said, well, look, I've got a, I've got an aeroplane drop tank in a, in a sea lake that I can fish out and turn into a bobsleigh. Let's, let's do that. So, so they so my friend Kaya sold that concept to them, so that I had to build this bobsleigh in my back garden out of a giant aeroplane fiberglass aeroplane drop tank from like the Second World That's War. Stuck. I've still got it; it's in a container somewhere. Oh. If anyone wants to buy one, it is for sale. <laughs> and then I kind of went back to being a, a punter for a few years, and then I got really into street theatre because you couldn't make any money as an actor, so. But you could make money as a street theatre performer, particularly at the the early part of the 2000s, late 90s, early part of the 2000s. The street theatre industry had really kind of established itself as part of the British theatrical art scene. And um, yeah, I did a few years uh, in theatre and circus doing walkabout acts, various forms of stupidity. Uh, it was a lot of fun. And then I managed to get back into the, I managed to combine that with silent disco DJing with the Dutch guys because they were they were doing, originally they were doing the original silent disco in the dance village and then they moved to the park, um, which was a much nicer venue because the dance village at Glastonbury is basically just headbangers and the, the park is a much nicer space. So uh, I ended up working two jobs. So I'd work all night DJing and then I'd try and get up and work all day doing walkabout and that nearly killed me about five years in a row yeah I, I remember going to the doctors the, going to see my GP before one Glastonbury um, because I was leaving Glastonbury and immediately going to Serbia and I knew that Glastonbury would give me a chest infection so I got him to give me a prescription for antibiotics in advance of the fact that I had the chest infection that I told him I was going to get <laughs> And he did it. I was always amazed that, that I got that to work. <laughs> so, Paul, you've talked about a really diverse range of stuff that you've done from the, the silent disco to the, to the puppetry to the street theatre. What is it that continues to drive your creativity and, and how, much of it is, how much of it is planned? Is it, is it sounds like it's very much a way of life for you. 
Um, I don't think any of it's been planned, Ben. I don't think any of it's been planned. I'm not sure. I don't wake up in the morning with a plan. And I think I came to the conclusion, it's very, it was a very scary thing because I, I, I originally, I've got a background in mechanical engineering. I did, um, when I was in Lung Nugget, uh, I was working as a forklift engineer, fixing forklift trucks. And before that, I'd been a motor mechanic. And after that, I was a diesel engineer on mostly on ships. Lowestoft, if you don't know, is a port. It's also to the most easterly point in Britain. So I took a kind of giant sideways leap. Uh, and I remember exactly when it was. It was 1997. It was, um, it was just after the new Labour government were elected. And it felt like, and I, I was 29 years old, and it felt like, look, if I didn't do something at this point and change direction and just start trying to be happy, then I was not going to have a nice life because I was really not enjoying engineering at all. It was driving me fucking bananas. Um, it's just no fun. It's no fun working for idiots in dangerous occupations. It's no fun at all. So um, I decided to work for idiots in non-dangerous occupations, and that that's much more fun. But I've always worked on the principle, and but it's yeah, it's a kind of really scary, potentially scary thing. That kind of leaving job security. That remember that that used to be a thing, didn't it? In the in the twentieth century, job security. People would talk about job security that nobody ever talks about job security anymore because it's no longer a thing. You mention job security to people these days and they look at you like you've talked about a goat airport. Um, <laughs> job security was, I just gave it up. I just, I just decided, to, I decided it was shit or bust. It was shit or bust time. Somebody, a friend uh, I was working with in amateur theater offered me a touring job in professional theater. So uh, I took it. Um, and then I just vowed I was never going back and, and I haven't been forced to yet. So, you know, that's one in the eye for everybody else and one for me. Well, you've, you're built for it, aren't you? And I think, I think that's, that goes back to what you were saying before about standing on a stage, holding a microphone and feeling like this is somewhere where I feel like the best version of me and where I feel most at home. And, and that's always always been the case you don't need a microphone on a stage that's it to my to <laughs> my mind like before you you know you are you are that town you're, you're just that's because we, that, that's because we've got two yogurt pots and a very long string between my house and yours that cross the country that little guy in the pennines with a stick and a hook in it holding it up in the air for us <laughs> Well, we're 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 heading towards the end of our list of questions. But the, we, one of the questions, that, or one of the things that we're sort of trying to do with these podcasts is is exp exploring the bands a little bit. Um, so, what happened to the rest of Lung Nugget? Uh, Med, the last time I saw him, he was working in a bookshop in Lowestoft. Um, I haven't seen him for a while, and I'm not sure what's happened to him. Um, and uh, Justin and Daniel Hawkins, well, I mean, who knows what happened to them? They followed their own musical path, and they re they really sold out and became successful and and famous. And uh, you know, they never phone. They never phone me. I mean, the phone's turned on, boys. If you if you're listening, I know Justin did live in Lowestoft for a while. It was uh, we used to I used to bump used to bump into him in Tesco's. 
and we'd talk about moustaches and butter uh, and cats. He was obsessed with cats for a while. <laughs> was there, there was never any talk of reforming Long Nugget then? I mean, never say never. I mean, no, there's no, no reunion shows in the pipeline. I think they're too busy with the darkness. But um, I mean, never say never. Never say never. I mean, the, uh, the strong the songs are strong enough. I think I think they hold together. I think leaves on the line is as pertinent now as it ever was. Um, and I am I am still <laughs> genuinely gutted. I'm still genuinely gutted that I don't have uh, a recording of Ken's on my mind and he's on my shoulder too, which um, which I really do wish I had. Because uh, it was a song about a guy I worked for who was an absolute solid gold cunt. <laughs> In fact, I knew um, my friend Andrew uh, is married to a woman who was his renal nurse when he had a kidney, his kidneys failed. They're going to give him uh, a kidney transplant, but all the kidneys they tried rejected him. He was just too unpleasant. <laughs> yeah, no, they, they became very famous and did lots. And the, 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 uh, the, the, the most amusing bit is that they, uh, the original lineup of The Darkness included my cousin Ed on the drums. So, you know, it all went round in a weird circle. So, Paul, at that time when that was uh, when that sort of the rise of the darkness to that kind of stadium level success, there was a lot of um, I know for uh, us that knew them, there was a lot of a big sense of joy for them. But there was also a little bit, certainly from uh, for me or for about kind of feeling a bit envious and about wanting to be having those experiences, you know, with all this excess and verve and that did that. um, did that trouble you at all? No, it didn't actually. I did get phoned up by a guy from a tabloid trying to get information, but I really confused him. So he'd never, he'd only heard of Empire, which was a band that Justin was in. He'd never even heard of Lung Nugget. When I dropped Lung Nugget <laughs> on him, I thought he was going to shit himself. Um, but I wouldn't, but I wouldn't give him any more leads. So I gave him the tantalizing idea of a band that he'd not heard of, Justin and Dan were in, but, um, but never gave him any more information. So he, he probably, furiously smashed his head against the wall for hours trying to get around that conundrum. Um, no, I mean, my, my, my cousin, Ed, it was, is rock and roll excess personified. It was like a proper episode of Spinal Tap, but he was always extremely, um, extremely generous. And he, he still is. He's quite a down to earth fella. Um, he's just never had a proper job, so he doesn't really understand the world at all it's just quite entertaining i do love you ed if you're listening just thinking about um your creativity and t- it's the, the directions that it's taken you off into and and all the places that you've been but you've but you've always remained rooted to lowestoft and i've always i've always found that really uh yeah uh, it makes it makes sense but could could you talk a little bit about that and like i think if you if you if you want to spend your time oscillating wildly around like a maniac trying to enjoy yourself and also spread some fun, you need a, you know, a wheel that will only spin around a central point. You need a base. You need a, an axis. You need a hideout. I quite often describe Lowestoft as a hideout because you just come back here and people just treat you like an, like like it sounds incredibly arrogant like a normal person like, yeah because you are just a normal person but you just go out and you know, hang out with your mate who's a works on the dock or 
or runs a pub or whatever. Yeah, I don't. I think in order to go to the moon, you need to establish a really good base at NASA to fire your rocket from. And if you if you've not if you're not firing your rocket from a stable point, it's never going to hit its target accurately. It's like your happy place, you know. I hate I I bought this house a very long while ago, and it is a shithole. But uh, at the same time, at the same time, I kind of I kind of love it because it just serves my needs perfectly. It's like a little it, houses are machines for living in, and it's just I just the right size to just keep me afloat. Paul, thank you so much. Thank you so much, mate, for doing this, being on the shirt podcast and sharing your some of your memories. Um, can we just close out with you introducing the song that people are going to hear now? Well, the song you're going to hear now is the song that we rehearsed the most because we enjoyed doing it so much. Um, and it was always the song that we enjoyed performing live the most. Uh, it just always brought stupid amounts of joy to our, our tiny minds because it was so much fun and that song is satan's in my phone box open brackets let's give him a ring close brackets thanks mate <laughs>
Songs from a Padded Envelope is presented, produced and edited by Steve Swindon and Ben Clay. Music is by state-sponsored Jukebox. Artwork is by Matt Canning. Songs from a Padded Envelope is a Hidden Hive production. <laughs>